0: Turkish Odyssey. Discover Istanbul and Turkey with Sheriff Yener. Hello, everyone. In this episode, we're going to talk about the history of Istanbul. As you know, Istanbul is located on the two sides of the Bosphorus. Bosphorus is a natural waterway in the north and south direction in the south, it is the Sea of Marmara, and in the north, it is the Black Sea. It's a 20 miles long waterway, much larger and much deeper uh, river. And the two sides of the Bosphorus is the city of Istanbul with a population of 17 million people. One side of the Bosphorus is Europe, and the other side is Asia. As you enter into the Bosphorus from the south, from the Sea of Marmara, Right after you enter, there is an inlet. There is a little bay in the shape of a horn, which is named as the golden horn. With that golden horn in the north and the Sea of Marmara in the south, there is a peninsula. And that peninsula is called as the historical peninsula. That was the old city of Constantinople. Everything happened there. So our focus is going to be on this peninsula, the historical peninsula. Istanbul has a legendary foundation story, and we read about this story from Strabo, a 1st century BC traveler, geographer, historian from Anatolia. According to his story, in the 7th century BC, in 667, the Megarian people, who used to live in the mainland of Greece, wanted to change their settlement. As it was customary in those times, the king of the Megarian people, Byzas, went to the oracle of Delphi to consult with the oracle about where to settle down. This was a very common practice in those times. People went to the oracles and consulted with them, and oracles were never clear. They always gave intricate answers. When Bezos asked about where they would settle down, The oracle of Delphi told them that they would settle down opposite the blind people's land. And they didn't know where that land was. They started their migration. They came towards the east and they came to the area of Istanbul and the historical peninsula. And in those times, 7th century BC, there was no settlement there. They came to the hill, which is located at the tip of the peninsula overlooking the three bodies of water, the Sea of Marmara, the Golden Horn, and the Bosphorus. They loved the place. It was a high hill, which would be possible to protect it with walls all around. And they would also have a natural harbor in the Golden Horn, and they would be able to make sea trade between the east and west. They actually loved the place. But they remembered the words of the oracle. They had to justify that. Opposite the blind people's land. They looked at the other side of the Bosphorus, the Asian side, and they saw a small settlement there, which was named as Chalcedon or Kalkedon. It was an earlier settlement. And they wondered why those people of Chalcedon chose their location instead of the historical peninsula. And then they said, they must be blind. So opposite the blind people's land was here, and they decided to settle down in here. The king of Megarians named the city with his own name. The city of Byzas became Byzantium. For almost 1,000 years, Byzantium never prospered, kept as a modest town. The population was never more than 20 or 25,000 people. They carried out sea trade, they collected taxes from the ships passing through the Bosphorus, and they survived in a modest way. Having started the history of the city from the 7th century BC, I have to stop here and mention the subway construction in the old city from 2004. During this construction, they suddenly by coincidence, discovered a wooden shipwreck buried in the silt and they had to delay the subway construction and they started an archaeological dig. They found other shipwrecks there. As they excavated them, they identified these shipwrecks from the Byzantine period. This place was believed to be a harbor, the harbor of Theodosius from the Byzantines. Sunken ships were found buried under the silt. The silt was the silting up of the harbor by the Lycos River, flowing into the harbor. Eventually, they discovered 37 shipwrecks in here, and this is accepted to be the world's largest medieval shipwreck collection. Most of the ships were still intact together with their cargo, cherry seeds in the baskets, butchered animal bones they found. So this was a great discovery, and these pieces, which were excavated there, are now under preservation, waiting to be exhibited in the new Maritime Museum, which will be built in the same area. We are looking forward to it. When they believed that they reached the bottom of the harbor, they were going to stop the excavations. But as they continued a little farther deeper, they found more artifacts dating back to the Neolithic period this time, 5,500. The Neolithic finds included some burials and some wooden pieces which were believed to be oars for little boats. 5,500 plus 2,000 from the AD period, it makes 7,500 years altogether. So, as we used to start the history of Istanbul from the 7th century BC, before these excavations now we have to revise our sayings the history of the old city goes back to approximately 5500 bc now let's go back to the 7th century bc and continue with the city of byzantium and 7th century bc was about the end of the iron age in anatolia Urartian people lived in the east, in the areas of Lake Van and the mountain, Mount Ararat. They excelled in medals. They were great warriors, and they dominated the rugged area of the east. The Phrygians lived in central Anatolia, and their capital city was Gordion, not too far away from modern-day Ankara. And their famous king was King Midas. And you are familiar with King Midas from mythology, long donkey years of King Midas, for example. Lydians lived in the West, in the Aegean region. Their capital city was Sardis, and the Lydians became the earliest people to mint the earliest coins in history, and that happened in the 7th century BC as well. Another civilization from Anatolia was the Carians, and they lived in the Southwest. In the middle of the 6th century BC, Persians started attacking Anatolia, and they defeated the Lydians in the middle of the 6th century, and the Persian period started in Anatolia. So, Persians took to full control of Anatolia, and they were giving hard times to the Greeks as well. And this Persian period continued up until the coming of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was the son of Philip The king of Macedonia. He was a genius. He had great talent in leadership and he had a big ego. He had big ambitions and he wanted to control the world. After preparing an army in 334 BC, he started his big campaign and arrived in Anatolia. His first encounter with the Persians took place near the ancient city of Troy. He had his First battle against the Persians in the Granicus battle, and that was near Troy. He won the battle, and then his reputation started going ahead of him. In a very short while, he took the control of Anatolia. He arrived in another area called Issos near Alexandria, that is near the Syrian border today. And he had his second major battle against the Persians at Issos. And this was in 333 BC, and he won that battle as well. Then he continued farther down to Egypt. Ten years after he started his big campaign, because of an illness, he passed away, leaving no heirs behind. So his generals started fighting against each other in order to have the control on the lands that Alexander the Great left behind. With the death of Alexander the Great, The period which started was named as the Hellenistic period, referring to the blend between the Greek culture of Alexander the Great and the local culture of Anatolia. And the Hellenistic period continued until the Roman era. The new power coming from the West was the Romans. And the Romans took the control of Pergamum a Hellenistic kingdom in the Aegean region in the West, and this happened in 133 BC, and this is accepted to be the beginning of the Roman era in Anatolia. From then on, they continued taking more lands in Anatolia. So the city of Byzantium passed through all these periods and finally came under the Romans. Then Towards the end of the 3rd century A.D., a new system was introduced in the Roman Empire. This was the Tetrarchy, meaning leadership of four. In this system, the Roman Empire was governed by two senior emperors, and each was called Augustus. And each Augustus had a junior who was called a Caesar. Altogether, it makes four. When we look at the time between 312 and 324 AD, we see two co emperors. One is Licinius, who ruled the east, and the other is Constantine the Great, who ruled the west. These were the times in which Christianity was still strictly forbidden and early Christians were persecuted. And on the other hand, Constantine's mother was Helena, and she was a strong believer of Christianity. Constantine was very close to Christianity, whereas Licinius was very much against it. Constantine once had a vision and painted a Christian symbol on his soldiers' shields. Under this emblem, he was successful in the Milvian bridge battle against Maxentius and entered Rome. In 313 AD, Constantine the Great and Licinius came together in Milan and they made an agreement to change policies towards Christians. With this Edict of Milan, they were going to treat Christians nicely. But it didn't happen so, and this agreement did not help the relation between the two co-emperors. They later encountered, for the last time, in a battle. That was the Battle of Chrysopolis, and this was in 324. Chrysopolis is today's Üsküdar on the Asian side of Istanbul. After defeating Licinius in this battle, Constantine became the sole emperor ending the period of the Tetrarchy. He is known as Constantine the Great for very good reasons. He was such a great leader. After nearly eight years of political fragmentation, Constantine united the whole of the Roman Empire under one ruler. He was able to restore stability and security to the Roman world. I personally see him as the Roman version of Alexander the Great. Whether he was a believer of Christianity or used Christianity for his political propaganda, Constantine became the patron of the Christian faith. In 325, he gathered church officials in the Council of Nicaea. Two years earlier, This meeting would have been unthinkable. It was a gathering of 312 bishops from throughout the Roman Empire. When they came together, under the leadership of Constantine, they discussed many Christian matters, including whether Jesus was the Son of God or the God himself. Out of this came the Nicene Creed, which affirmed that Jesus was a divine being. Constantine supported the church financially, had a number of basilicas built, granted privileges like tax exemption to clergy, promoted Christians to high-ranking offices, returned property confiscated during the persecutions. In the meantime, after becoming the sole ruler, he did not want to go to Rome. He didn't want to use Rome as his capital. He chose the little town of Byzantion for his capital, and he started preparing Byzantion to be the capital for the Roman Empire. Whatever they had in Rome, he had to have them in his new capital as well. He started building churches, Church of the Holy Apostles, the first version of the Hagia Sophia, Hagia Irene. He was the one who started the construction of these churches, for example. His life was not long enough to see the completion of these buildings. He built new walls, enlarging the city. He started the construction of the Great Palace. In Rome, they had Circus Maximus, so he needed a hippodrome in Istanbul as well. He restored and enlarged an earlier hippodrome in Constantinople. He wanted to have an obelisk from Egypt. But it was not that easy to bring a large obelisk all the way from Egypt. So they couldn't do that. But instead, they built a new monument, which looked like an obelisk. He also built a shopping street from the Million Monument, the zero-mile marker, the center of the earth, the beginning point of all of the roads from the capital to his forum. He built a circular forum under his name, And this shopping street connected the Million Monument to his forum. Imagine a 60 feet wide street with cobblestones and sewage system underneath and two floors of stores on the two sides, more like a shopping mall. And in the middle of his circular forum, he erected a big monument with his statue on top. And this monument is still in its place, without the statue. In the year 330, the official opening of the capital was made. And the new name for Byzantium was Nea-Roma, the new Rome. A little later, the name of Constantine, the emperor, was given to the city. So, the city was named as Constantinopolis, Constantinople, the city of Constantine. This was such a big turning point in the history of Istanbul. Can you imagine? A little town of 20,000 people suddenly became the important capital for the great Roman Empire. Such a big change in the history of the city. The population from 20,000 increased to 170,000 in the time of Constantine. In the following centuries, at the peak, The population of Constantinople reached half a million. Helena was the mother of Constantine at a very late age. After a vision that she had, she went down to the Holy Land to look for the True Cross. It is said that she found the True Cross there and she came back to Constantinople with pieces of it. Constantine became the first Roman Emperor to allow Christianity. So Helena And her son, Constantine, were later elevated to be saints in the Greek Orthodox Church. A little later, a prominent emperor came to power. And this was Theodosius I. He ruled in the last quarter of the 4th century AD. In 381, Theodosius convened the First Council of Constantinople. And this was the Second Ecumenical Council. And in this council, the Nicene Creed was revised. Theodosius was able to bring the obelisk from Egypt. It was transported to Constantinople and erected in the central axis on the spina of the Hippodrome. Hippodrome was the place where chariot races were held. In 392, Theodosius made a very important thing. He banned paganism, and he announced Christianity to be the official religion for the Roman Empire. After that, all pagan temples had to be torn down. So they started destroying the temples, but columns, capitals, marble or other stone panels or slabs were all saved to be recycled in the buildings to be built. In 395, Theodosius did the second most important thing in his life, during his reign, he divided the Roman Empire into Eastern and Western to split it between his two sons. He divided the empire somewhere from the Balkans. So his two sons, Honorius, got the West, and Rome became the capital for West, and Arcadius got the East, and Constantinople became the capital for the Eastern Roman Empire. From this division in 395 until the fall in 1453, the eastern half was the Eastern Roman Empire. Western Roman Empire collapsed 81 years later, in 476, and its vast territory was divided into several successor polities. In the 18th and 19th centuries, historians from Europe, in order to emphasize the difference, between the Roman and Eastern Roman Empires, they suggested a new name for the Eastern Empire, and they derived this new word from the first name of the city, the Byzantine Empire. First, it was not accepted well, but later on, people liked it and started using it. Today, either the Eastern Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire refers the same time period, the time from 395 until 1453, the Byzantine Empire. When the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire died in 408, his son Theodosius II became the new emperor. The reign of Theodosius II was marked by the construction of the Theodosian walls together with the Golden Gate. With the new land walls, he enlarged the city even more. Many parts of these walls are still standing today. It's a beautiful experience to walk along these walls today. In the early 5th century, during the reign of Theodosius II, the Hagia Sophia was destroyed because of some riots in the city. So Theodosius II ordered the construction of the Hagia Sophia for the second time in the same place. In the sixth century, another prominent emperor took over the rule, and this was Justinian. Sometimes he's named as Justinian the Great. He ruled the empire for more than 40 years. This was the climax of the Byzantine power. The famous Nica revolt of 532, took place against Justinian. Justinian, although he became one of the most prominent emperors, in the early years during his reign, he didn't have enough experience. He was not from the royal family. He came to power after his uncle Justin. And Justin took over the rule with a coup. And when Justin died, Justinian came to power. He didn't know how to treat people. He started collecting too much taxes, and his administration was bad against people. So people were very unhappy. One day, when there was a big crowd in the hippodrome for chariot races, there were generally two groups of people, the Blues and the Greens. And for the first time ever, the two groups of the audience came together and they started protesting against the administration. And Justinian didn't know how to deal with this. And he started applying too much pressure on the protesters. And it got back to him. The protesters got out of the place. They went to the prison. They rescued the prisoners there. And they got their weapons. And then they started attacking buildings. And they started destroying everything that they came across. They tore down the Hagia Sophia and the Hagia Irene. And then they were ready to go to the palace and change the emperor. Justinian was very much scared. Together with the high officials, they started making escape plans. But he was married to a very beautiful and a very wise lady, Theodora. The moment she heard about the escape plans, she must have joined the last Senate meeting and made a speech there, convincing them not to leave the country and to fight for their country. So they made new plans. They invited the protesters back to the hippodrome. They said the emperor was going to negotiate with them. So the protesters believed this. They came back to the hippodrome, 30,000 of them. And once they were inside the hippodrome, the doors were all guarded by the armies of Justinian And together with their weapons, they went inside, and they started slaughtering 30,000 people. After a while, 30,000 people were killed in the ancient Hippodrome. After everything became peaceful, Justinian was finally able to go out of his palace, and he went to see the ruins of Hagia Sophia. He was so disappointed. So he was not actually a very religious ruler and he had just killed 30,000 people. With the blood of these people still in his hands, he had to make a big show to people. So he called his two architects, and he asked them to build the Hagia Sophia from the beginning, but he wanted the Hagia Sophia to be the largest religious shrine ever built. And within about five and a half years, they were able to build the Hagia Sophia, and He was so proud of his new work. And the Hagia Sophia, which was built in the time of Justinian in the 6th century, is still standing today, 1,500 years old. In the next century, in the Arabic peninsula, Prophet Muhammad started spreading Islam. And he died in 632, and Islam continued spreading from there. In the next centuries, seventh and eighth centuries, Arabs attacked Constantinople many times. In the ninth century, it was the Bulgarians who besieged Constantinople. There was tension between the Eastern and Western churches, between Constantinople and Rome. And this tension reached its climax, and in 1054, the Great Separation, the Great Sikhism, took place. So these churches were later known as the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic. In 1071, the Seljuk Turks defeated the Byzantines at the Battle of Manzikert, and Turks started overrunning central Anatolia. Constantinople, throughout history, was one of the most frequently besieged cities in the world the Avars, Bulgarians, Arabs, Vikings, Crusaders, and Turks, one after another. But it was a very well-defended city with walls all around. The walls of Constantinople are divided into three sections. The walls all along the Marmara Sea were named as the Marmara Sea Walls. And the walls along the Golden Horn were named as the Golden Horn Walls and in between these two bodies of water, the land walls. At the mouth of the Golden Horn from the Bosphorus, the Byzantines stretched a large chain, and this chain didn't allow the enemy ships to enter into the Golden Horn. So the walls along the Golden Horn did not need to be so defensive because the enemy ships couldn't reach there anyway. In the history of the city, It is said that there were more than 20 sieges, and almost all of these sieges were unsuccessful except for two. The city fell only twice, first to the Crusaders, then to the Turks. When it fell to the Turks, it was the end of the Byzantine Empire, and it happened in the middle of the 15th century. Let's take a look at the Crusaders now. The Fourth Crusade, was from 1202 and 1204. So these were the Christians, Latin Christians, who came together under the call of the Pope. And this time, it was Pope Innocent III. And the purpose of the expedition was to recapture the Muslim-controlled city of Jerusalem. And they were aiming to defeat the powerful Egyptian Ayubid Sultanate. However, it ended up with the sack of Constantinople. This led to the partitioning of the Byzantine Empire. Fourth Crusaders decided to reach the Holy Land via the sea. But they were not the sea people. They needed help for this. And they wanted the Venetians provide sea transportation for themselves. But they did not have money to pay for this service. Therefore, They agreed to help Venetians capture the city of Zara on the Adriatic Sea. Zara was sacked in 1204, the first attack against a Catholic city by a Catholic crusader army. In the meantime, the Byzantine emperor Alexios III, with a palace coup, deposed his brother Isaac II. Isaac was also blinded. This was a traditional punishment for treason. Prince Alexios, the son of the recently deposed emperor Isaac II, made an offer to the crusaders. When he saw that the crusaders gathered up again, he made a suggestion to them. He expected the crusaders to sail to Constantinople and overthrow the reigning emperor Alexios III. In return to this, he offered to pay the entire debt owed to the Venetians, give more money to the crusaders, Byzantine professional troops for the crusade, the service of the Byzantine navy to transport the crusader army to Egypt, and the placement of the Eastern Orthodox Church under the authority of the Pope. This offer was too tempting to refuse. According to Prince Alexios, If the Crusaders, together with their ships, appeared in Constantinople, the people of Constantinople, who didn't want war, would think this was happening because of the reigning emperor Alexios III, and they would avoid war by overthrowing Alexios. The Crusader fleet arrived in front of Constantinople on June 24, 1203, and it was expected that the people would rise in favor of Prince Alexios, but it didn't happen so. Some of the Venetians among the Crusaders had lived in Constantinople from before. They were well aware of the weak points of the city. They captured the tower on the city side of the Golden Horn chain. The chain was lowered, and their ships went into the Golden Horn and landed in Galata, the opposite side of the city. The Crusaders attacked the Golden Horn Walls. The Venetians, who were very successful at sea, were not as successful in the land war. On July the 17th, the Venetians made a hole in the walls, and all they could do was starting a fire. The Byzantines, who were quite disturbed by the situation, in order to avoid more troubles, placed Isaac II and his son Prince Alexios on the throne again. Emperor Alexios III escaped with a lot of money and treasury. There was no longer any need for war. Thus, the crusader attack was stopped. Emperor Isaac II accepted the promises that his son made earlier. However, these promises were impossible to realize. The imperial treasury was short on funds. At that point, the younger emperor ordered the destruction and melting of valuable Byzantine and Roman icons in order to extract their gold and silver. But even then, he could not raise enough. Things got worse, and on April the 13th, in 1204, the city fell to the crusaders. The emperor, patriarch, and many nobles fled, and the city was looted and destroyed for three days. Constantinople, the center of Christian world for about 900 years, lost all its splendor, wealth, and works of art as a result of this plundering. Countless icons, relics, and precious treasures from churches, monasteries, palaces, and libraries were plundered and destroyed. Crusaders entered the holiest church of Christianity, Hagia Sophia on their horses. Lots of other unpleasant things happened. Crusaders established the Latin Empire of Constantinople that would last for 57 years. Members of the royal family fled and they established other Byzantine kingdoms in Nicaea and other places. 57 years later, the ruler of Nicaea regained Constantinople and refounded the Byzantine Empire and that was in 1261. But Constantinople was never able to recover anymore. The Byzantines granted the quarter on the other side of the golden horn to the Genoese in 1267. From then on, Genoese merchants carried out trade from these lands. Two centuries later, in 1453, this time, it was the Turks who captured Constantinople and declared it to be the new capital for the Ottoman Empire. This was the end of the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire, or the Eastern Roman Empire, was ruled from Istanbul for more than 1,000 years, leaving a very rich cultural heritage behind. Depending on your interest level, you can spend from a day to a week to see the Byzantine monuments in Istanbul today. To summarize some of the Byzantine highlights, of course, the Hagia Sophia, the most important of all, still standing. It is functioning as a mosque today, but it's open to visitors. You can still see the mosaics and the beautiful architecture. Hagia Irene is a museum today. It is located within the first courtyard of the Topkapi Palace. In comparison to the Hagia Sophia, it was much smaller. But it was built by Justinian, just like the Hagia Sophia. Monastery of Christ, Pantocrator. Such a vast monastery. In the Turkish period, it was converted into school, a medrese. Later, it was made a mosque. Recently, there was a new restoration. So it is functioning as a mosque today. And its name is Molla Zeyrek. But open to visitors. And it's a beautiful architecture. Another Byzantine church, Miralion church, was converted into a mosque under the name Bodrum Mosque, and it's open to visitors as well. Similar to that, Kalenderhane Mosque is another place of interest. And the Church of St. Sergius and Bacchus, which is functioning as a mosque under the name Little Hagia Sophia Mosque. Beautiful architecture, beautiful Byzantine period friezes made out of marble, just like lacework, and this was a building which was built by Justinian even before the Hagia Sophia. Istanbul was a city of cisterns. It is said that in the Byzantine era, there were approximately 400 cisterns to store water for times of sieges and war. From... Almost 400 cisterns from the Byzantine era. We have been able to identify 150 or 160 of them. Some of them are so beautiful, built with recycled columns and capitals from the earlier pagan temples. The basilica cistern, the Theodosius cistern, the Bimbirdrek cistern or the Nakkai cistern are beautiful cisterns. They were not made to look beautiful. Their function was to store water only. And in most cases, people did not even go inside. It was filled with water. But because these places are open to visitors today, we are able to see the beauty inside, the beautiful columns and the capitals uh, placed in rows. And it makes such a picturesque view. We have a few remaining parts of the palaces from the Byzantine era. Uh, the Great Palace is in the Sultan Ahmed area. And we can see parts of it, especially the Great Palace Mosaics Museum is a nice area. And the Magnaura Palace is possible to reach from some privately owned cafes. The Bukaleon Palace was a seaside palace on the shore, which is under restoration today. And the Tekfur Palace is far away from the center, located on the land walls. Uh, And it has been recently restored and made a museum So it's a nice place to visit as well. The ancient Hippodrome is still there, with no seats anymore. But the central axis, with a few of the monuments, which once upon a time decorated the Spina, are possible to see. Forum of Constantine is gone, but the Column of Constantine is still standing there. Forum of Theodosius is gone, but some of the pieces from the Victory Arch are possible to see. The Aqueduct of Valens is still standing with its grandeur, possible to see. The Martian Column is another monument. The land walls, the Theodosian walls, are so beautiful. Almost half of them are still standing. And together with the Golden Gate, where the emperors entered into the city while returning from victorious battles, is still standing and possible to see. So these are some of the highlights from the Byzantine era, and we can see all of them together. So in the next episode, we are going to take a look at the Turkish history of Istanbul. See you then.